Thanks for joining us. The following is a presentation of Ignite Global Ministries and features the teaching of Pastor Ben Dixon. Pastor Ben has a vision of strengthening the church to impact the world. He serves as lead pastor at Northwest Foursquare Church in Federal Way, Washington. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your grace. And Lord, we just ask, Lord, that you would bless the word, that you would guide us through this study. Lord, not only teaching us who you are and what you've said and done, but Lord, also changing us because we have stepped into your presence. Allow the word to minister to us and change us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Uh, we are in the last three chapters of Amos chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9. And in these chapters, Amos has five visions. Three of those visions are found in chapter 7, which we'll review quickly. Then we're going to actually look at the fourth vision that he has today, which is in chapter 8. And then the final vision will be in chapter 9, which Pastor Ben will deal with tomorrow. So as we look at what was taught yesterday. The first vision was the swarm of locusts, and that was found in chapter 7, verse 1. And it says that after the king had received his share of the crop, that the locusts came and were going to strip the earth bare. That was a vision that the prophet had. And the people would have no food, that they would have no future. And notice the heart. Amos intercedes and the Lord repents. He changes his mind and said that it will not happen. Again, as we're talking about prayer, the value of intercession, the Lord changes his mind. We're able to ask God to intervene. The second vision that Amos has is in uh, chapter 7, verse 4, and it's the vision of the fire. And this fire not only consumes the land, but it consumes the ocean as well, till the ocean is dry. And that's looking at the Mediterranean Sea. And it's possible that that would picture a severe drought. And again, Amos says, Lord, may it not be. And he intercedes. And again, the Lord repents and says it will not happen. And then Amos comes up with the third vision. And the third third vision is the plumb line. And the plumb line is a tool that is used to make sure things are straight. It was used in Egypt. It was used throughout the ancient world. And it's still used today. And so the bottom line is what's being said with this vision is that as God measures Israel, that they do not measure up to his standard. And thus, because they do not measure up and have continually not done so, that judgment is announced against them, against both their government in the northern kingdom, which is Israel, which was ruled in Samaria, and it was the ten northern tribes, and uh, against their religion, that their religion had been found to be mixed and had been found to be full of idol worship. And so Israel's day of grace is ended, and the Lord speaks through the prophet, I will spare them no longer. In other words, again, it's an announcement that certain judgment will come. Today, we go on to the fourth vision that the prophet had, and it's going to be the vision of a basket of summer fruit or a vision of ripe fruit in a basket. 
Will you look at the scripture with me as we look at Amos chapter 8, verses 1 and 2? And the scripture says, Thus the Lord God showed me, and behold, <laughs> the term behold is like, wow, look at this. There was a basket of summer fruit. And he, the Lord, said, What do you see, Amos? And I said, A basket of summer fruit. And then the Lord said to me, The end has come for my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. And so in this vision, there is a basket of ripe fruit. And the picture that is to be discerned out of this is that Israel, just as the basket of fruit was ripe, so Israel is now ripe for judgment. The time of judgment is certain. It's come. And the end of Israel has come. And the Lord says for a second time, I will spare them no longer. It is a statement of judgment. And the word says that the statements or the word of the Lord is confirmed by two or three witnesses. And so we have the same statement said twice, I will spare them no longer. So again, it just solidifies the whole aspect that judgment is coming. And so the Lord's judgment will go on. The coming destruction is seen in verse 3. Let's read verse 3. The songs of the palace will turn to wailing in the day, declares the Lord God. Many will be the corpses in every place. They will cast them forth in silence. So the judgment is seen. The first response to the judgment is be the songs that are sung of joy in the palace itself will turn to wailing. And it's an inarticulable loud scream that joyful celebration turns into imaginable, inimaginable grief. So the grief is there and it's expressed in the wailing that happens. And often in the third world that as something, as a catastrophe or death happened, people would wail out loud and make noise. The second response to this destruction was silence. And the silence could be a sense of just being overwhelmed, not being able to know how to respond, and it was just no words could even say anything or no sound could express the grief that was there. But the silence could also be a response to bow before God's overwhelming severity that he punished the land with. So again, the response to this destruction is twofold. There is wailing, there is silence. The reason for these two responses is that there are med, many dead bodies that are scattered everywhere. And it's really a, a word of prophecy that an enemy would come in and would invade and kill the masses of people. As we looked in chapter 5, it was the hundred would be ten left and the thousand would be a hundred left. It's a sign of complete annihilation of both their armies but also the people themselves. And there was so many people that the bodies would just be thrown in silence. As we continue on, uh, Amos is going to give his last admission to the rich and powerful, and that's found in verses 4 to 10. So let's look at verse 4 together. And the scripture says, Hear this, you who trample the needy, and do away with the humble in the land. Hear this, it's a strong word, and it's a summons to pay attention to the coming message. 
And he says, you who trample the needy. He's talking to the rich. He's talking to the merchants. It's going to go on to say. But it is the rich people, again, as we have looked through this study, that they lived in wealth, they lived in luxury, but they neglected the poor and they used the poor for their own means. So it says, you who trample the needy to harshly and unjustly treat the unprotected, unprotected. And you do away with the humble. This literally means to cause the cease. Now, in Israel's law, for the people of God, they were to be generous. They were to care for the poor. They were to defend them from corrupt people. They were to care for the orphans, the widows, the alien, and the poor. But Samaria and the land of Israel took no regard for the poor, but they simply used them for their own benefit. In verse 5, the prophet is going to confront the merchants. Verse 5 says, saying, When will the new moon be over so that we may sell again and the Sabbath that we may open the wheat market to make the bushels smaller and the shekel bigger and cheat with dishonest scales? So now he's going to confront the merchants themselves. Their worship was formal. When it talks about the new moon and the Sabbath, those were days where all activity of life was ceased. It was a day of a Sabbath that was special to be with the Lord, to be with family. No work was to be done, and commerce was not to happen. It literally was prohibited. And so as commerce is prohibited, you have these merchants they're kind of waiting for the markets to be reopened so that they could make money. They had no regard for the Lord. They simply were waiting to make a profit again. And their primary concern was to make money. Their God was money and not the Lord. And they were dishonest and greedy, and they gave less, and they increased price their prices, and they used false scales. When it says that they made the shekel bigger, what it means is either that they changed the weight on the scales because the shekel could either, either be a weight of silver or a shekel could be a coin, but usually it was a weight of silver. So they were just dishonest and they were ripping the people of God off by selling less quantity for more money. It goes on in verse 6 as it talks about their abuse of the poor. And it says, So as to buy the helpless for money and the needy for a pair of sandals, and that we may sell the refuge of the wheat. So again, the issue was not only that they abused the poor, but they bought the poor and brought them into indentured service or slavery and as they bought them, they would confiscate their property, but not only confiscate their property, but there was just an abuse, and they bought them for a little amount of money. It just says that they bought them for a pair of sandals. Basically, they were just opportunists, and they were using the poor for their own means. Uh, the poor, in essence, were a marketable commodity, and they were enslaved to meet the needs of the rich. And it goes on in the last sentence of this verse. It says, And that we may sell the refuse of wheat. 
In other words, sell the crumbs, <laughs> uh, the chaff of the wheat, that really that cannot bring any kind of nutrition at all, but they were still selling every little crumb to make a profit. And again, in Israel, by the law of Israel, the gleanings, uh, the fields were open for gleanings, and that which was left over was for the poor to come and to eat. But they took even that away for them, and it says that their value of the sweepings of wheat and for the poor were the same. They valued just their wealth instead of anything else. We go on in verse 7, and the Lord is going to make an oath of judgment as he swears by the pride of Jacob. And verse 7 says, And the Lord is sworn by the pride of Jacob. Indeed, I will never forget any of their deeds. So the Lord has bound himself to never forget the deeds of the merchants and how they have abused the poor and they have neglected to care for the people of God but simply used them as a commodity to serve their own needs and stolen their provisions, stolen the material goods that they had uh, to make themselves richer. And when the Lord says that he has made an oath of judgment, what he's doing is he has made a determination to punish them. He's going to punish the nation, but also punish these merchants as well. And when he swears, he swears by the pride of Jacob. Who is the pride of Jacob? The pride of Jacob is the Lord. What's our pride? It's the Lord Jesus. He is our Lord and Savior. He is the one that we worship, the one that we love with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And in the same way, the pride of the people of Israel and the people of Judah was not to be their religion, but it was to be God himself. And so the Lord, again, swears by himself. And as he swears by himself, there is no higher name. So it is something that will happen for sure as the Lord has made this oath of judgment against them. They will be punished. He goes on in verse 8. In verse 8, because says, Because of this, Will not the land quake, and everyone who dwells in it mourn? Indeed, all will rise up like the Nile, and it will be tossed about and subside like the Nile of Egypt. So again, it's a rhetorical question that's being asked in anticipation of a positive answer. And again, it's the declaration of God's judgment against the merchants, against the rich, and that it would produce a fear and a trembling and a mourning in anticipation of the coming judgment. In other words, as God speaks this judgment, there's to be a fear that is put upon the people as it's articulated through the prophet that God is certainly going to judge them. And this trembling is an agitation in their life, and it is um, due to the prophecy that has been given and it's compared to the Nile River in its flood stage. And the Nile River in its flood stage was very destructive. It would rise, it would fall, and Israel is going to face that same destruction from the Lord because of their action and the judgments that's been announced to them. We go on in verses 9 and 10. In verses 9 and 10, it just talks again about the coming of the day of gloom and grief, again, in the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord is something that we look forward to as Jesus is going to return on the clouds of glory riding a white horse. 
But the day of the Lord is not simply that which is in the future, but it was also that which is the day of judgment. And the prophet uses the day of the Lord continually as a day of judgment where God is going to provide justice to the land and give them what they've deserved. Verse 9 reads, And it will come about in that day, declares the Lord God, that I will make the sun go down at noon and make the earth dark in broad daylight. Then I will turn your festivals into mourning and your songs into lamentation, and I will bring sackcloth to, on everyone's loins and baldness on every head, and I will make it like the times of mourning for an only son, and the end of it will be like a bitter day. So again, we have the coming days of doom, and in that day, the day of the Lord, the sun will go down at noon. Now, this comes right out of the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 28. Deuteronomy 28 is the book of blessing and curses, and it says, if the Israel will follow the Lord, obey him, seek him, and live righteously, then all of these blessings will come upon you. But if they disobey, then all of these curses will call upon themselves. And Israel was on two different mountains. One was the mountain of blessing, where they were calling for the blessing of the Lord. And the other mountain was they were saying, if we disobey, may these curses come upon us. And one of the curses that would come upon them was the, that the sun would go down at noon. And the word says that you will grope at noon as blind man gropes in darkness. So this, again, the Lord is using the law to declare to them that judgment was certain for them and that they had brought a curse upon themselves because of the disobedience that they had for the Lord. And it says that their mourning would be very deep it would be like those who lost their only son. Now, in that society, the heritage, the family lineage was passed on to the firstborn son or to a son. And if there was no son, then it was seen as God's judgment and the family lineage would be cut off. And with that, if they had no son or if they lost their only son, there would be deep mourning and grief because it would be seen as the hand of God's judgment and that their family was no longer to be that that had a lineage. So with that, their mourning was not going to be just for mourning for the dead, but it was going to be a grief, a deep mourning that said they had lost everything and there was no longer the promise and the heritage that the Lord had given them as a people. Let's go on in our study as we look at verse 11. Verse 11 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine for bread or a thirst for water, but rather for the hearing of the words of the Lord. So as the Lord is predicting a famine, the judgment is not just punishment. It's not just exile. It's not just the death of many people, but there also is going to be the judgment in famine not just simply physically, but it is going to be a famine of the word of the Lord. It is going to be an absence of the revelation of the Lord, 
which came through the prophets. The prophets' voices are going to cease and they're going to speak no more. There would be false prophets, but they're not declaring the word of the Lord. And that there would be no teaching of the law, that the teaching of the Lord, the gathering places for the Lord would be destroyed. So there would be no more teachers and no more teaching of the word. But then really the key here is that there would be an absence of the Lord himself. And again, the word says in Deuteronomy 8.3, in the law of the people, that man will live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus used the scripture as he was tempted, but it's a declaration that the word of God was that which sustained the people of God. And because of the judgment of God, the word was going to be removed and the presence of God himself was going to be removed. Remember David in Psalm 51 says, take not thy Holy Spirit from me. It was the presence of the Lord that gave his kingdom stability, but also gave him life itself. And so that life is going to be removed. Verse 12 goes on to say, and the people will stagger from sea to sea and from the north and even to the east, and they will go and fro to and fro and seek the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. So again, as it talks about the people staggering, it's kind of like they are so famished. It's like a person that's starving to death that has had nothing to eat and nothing to drink. They can barely walk. They can't survive. They can't think. They can't go on. They just seem to be aimlessly wandering in the same way that the, way that the famine for the word of the Lord is going to be so deep that people will be aimless. They will find nothing. They will have no direction, and it will be as though they are dying physically. The scripture goes on in verse 13 to say, In that day, the beautiful virgins and the young men will faint from thirst. Again, it's the same thought going on in that day or in the season of judgment that is coming where the word of the Lord is gone. The young will be the least likely to faint because they are the strongest in society but they themselves will have no strength left in themselves because the word of the Lord is gone. In other words, the heritage of, the, of Israel was the presence of God. It, he was their strength. He was their blessing. He was their protection. And he, in essence, was their life. And they had rejected him because they were unrighteous. They were unjust. They oppressed the poor. They had idol worship. And because of all these things, Judgment has finally come, and the very essence and presence and word of God is going to be removed for them. You see, as a people, it's not our building, it's not our services, but it is the very essence of the presence of the Lord that makes us the people of God. Take the word of the Lord out, take the promises of the scripture, take the gospel away, and we have nothing to offer the world, and really we have nothing to offer life itself. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if Jesus is still in the grave, our gospel is useless, and we might eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. In other words, there is no purpose in life outside of the word and the purposes of the Lord, the gospel of our God. And Israel had no purpose. They were raised up to be the people that the Messiah would be birthed through. And they were raised up to be a kingdom of priests that would declare the goodness of God to the nations around them. 
but they failed in their purposes and they indulged themselves in their own desires, their fleshly desires. And thus, because of that, judgment has come and even the very presence of the Lord is removed from them and they would not be able to live without that. Let's go on and look at uh, the final uh, failure of Israel was their false religion. Verse 14, let's read verse 14 together. As for those who swear by the guilt of Samaria, who say as your God lives, O Dan, and who as the way of Beersheba lives, they will fail, they will fall, and not rise again. Again, the failure of their false religion. We know that the northern tribes, again, were known never to true truly serve the Lord all the way. Um, Jeroboam I, when um, he had separated from Rehoboam and established the northern tribes, um, was fearing that if his people went back to Jerusalem, they would reunite with Rehoboam and that he would lose his kingdom. So we established two places of worship, and one was in Samaria and one was in uh, Dan, and in both places, there were golden calves that were meant to be their God. Interesting, isn't it, that they again would bring a golden calf. Remember the children of Israel in the Exodus made a golden calf while Moses was on the mountain, and he ground that thing up, and he made them drink the water of it. But again, Israel goes back to that pagan God. They mix their religion with the living God with that which is known of the world religions as well. And because of that, they were known for their idol worship. And so the judgment here is, one, the guilt of Samaria. The guilt of Samaria was, one, the center of the northern tribes where the uh, government was run. But also, again, it was known for its idol worship because there was a golden calf at Bethel. And uh, Israel was worshipped idols, and they had not gone to the place of true worship because the place that the people were to offer sacrifice was in Jerusalem alone. And then they also had the God at Dan. Uh, when we went on our tour in Israel in the northern kingdom up there, right on the border of Dan, the place that they had the golden calf still stand there today. That was a place of worship on the northern border. And the golden calf was that again that they worshiped and declared that it was their God. And then it goes on to talk about their idolatry in the way of Beersheba. Beersheba was a religious pilgrimage. It was in the southern kingdom, um, on the southern end of that kingdom. But it was an idolatrous worship uh, to God where the patriarchs were worshipped because it was the place that both Abraham and Isaac had dug wells. So it was a pilgrimage that they made, but the essence of worship there was false worship because they were not seeking the true and the living God, but they were just going through a point of worship. So the key points that are being made in this chapter is because of their false gods, uh, and these, in this verse particularly, their false gods will not be able to save them from the judgment of God. Judgment is coming upon them because of their idol worship, and thus Israel's judgment is sealed. And it's sealed due to their lack of justice and their lack of righteousness. It's due to their false worship of false gods and their oppression of the poor 
And so the only thing that is left is certain destruction, exile, and the loss of relationship with God. All of this is a consequence for their sin, for their unbelief, for their disloyalty to the living God. All right, how can we apply this to our lives? What do we learn from the text? The key that we have as we're looking at the book of Amos, but also looking at the chapter we looked at today, was there was nothing sacred to them. Life had no value. The only value that life had for them was their own selfish indulgence. And they would do whatever it took, whether it was worshiping an idol, whether it was ripping off the poor. They lived alone to indulge themselves and to become rich and to use all that they had to satisfy the lust that they had for life. So nothing was sacred to them, not the worship of God. They couldn't wait for it to be over so they could go back to making money. There was, people were not important to them, nor honesty was important to them. Integrity was missing from their life. And the center essence of all these things, the love of people, the love to worship, and honesty and integrity is that which comes from a deep relationship of the living God and understanding who he is and what he's done for us. There's a humility that's brought to our life. We, as we look at this, we're to live a life of passion, integrity, and love for God. First and most, love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. The scripture says, and he has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. That is found in Micah chapter 6, verse 8. So as we apply the text and we learn from this text, the first thing that it says that we are to be a people of passion, integrity, and love. And with that, we are to love justice to be kind, and to walk humbly with our God. And to walk humbly simply means we carry ourselves low and we prefer others above ourselves, and we see ourselves as servants to care for the people of God. The second thing that this text teaches us is that the rich stole from the poor in order to store up wealth for themselves. They loved money. And Jesus said, If you wish to be complete... Go sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasures in heaven, and come follow me. Jesus was talking to the rich young ruler, and the rich young ruler had said, Lord, what do I have to do to serve you? What do I have to do to have eternal life? And Jesus says, keep the commands. And he said, I've done this from my youth. And the Lord had a love for him. But there was one thing that was blocking his relationship with God. And that was he loved money more than the Lord. And you and I, we live in a society that really our God is mammon. We have so many things. As we travel into the world, we go into South America, we go into Africa, we go to the Middle East and Asia. We find the peoples there really don't have anything at all. I remember when I was a young man, I went to the Philippines. I was in the service. And I got invited into a family's house. And the family's house was 20 feet by 20 feet, and there was a trap door in the middle of the floor, which was the bathroom, and that was their house. They had no refrigerator. They had an outside kitchen. 
And I began to really assess all that I had as an American because, see, being in the military, I didn't get paid much. And I thought, oh, man, life is so hard on me. But not only did I see what these people didn't have, but I also saw what I didn't have. You see, they had the joy of life, and they knew the value of community and how to live together and care for each other. And with that, they knew the value of life was to focus their attention on others and on the Lord, to store up treasure in heaven instead of on earth. The call for you and I as we live in the age that we are, we are a people of faith. And the word says that the Lord will meet all of our needs. But we're to trust him to give to the poor, serve them. And as a church, I know that we're reaching out to our community to love them. And thus, we'll store treasures in heaven. And with that, Jesus says, come follow me, be like me. The last thing that the scripture speaks to us is that the people had no time for worship Money was their God, and all they wanted to do was make money. I had a friend in Arizona that really was becoming a disciple of the Lord. And then he found through the housing um, crisis that was going on that he could do all of these appraisals and make money. And he made money hand over fist. And the more money he made, the more money he wanted. To this day, he has several businesses, lots of money, but no relationship with Jesus or the people of God. He simply has made more and more, but that is never enough to satisfy that yearning and need in his life. And again, we live in a society that money can be our God. And as for you and I, as we're following Jesus, that which is the most important thing is time with the Lord and time with his people. These people couldn't wait for the Sabbath to be over so that they could make money. But Jesus says, but if you seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, all these things will be added to you. Judgment was coming on them because of their worship, because of their idolatry, because they had no justice, no righteousness, no mercy, and because they wanted money to be their God. And for you and I, we are being called out of that to love the Lord, to trust Jesus, to give our lives to others, and to give our life to him. And as we serve him and follow him, he will always care for us because our life is a light of life of faith, and it's based in the faithfulness and the goodness of God. He will always supply our needs according to his riches and glory. And you and I, as we serve him, as we love people, as we have the compassion of Christ in our life, it will touch and change the very essence of world around us. We are called to be those that worship in spirit and truth. We are called to be those that love the poor. We are called to be those people that live rightly and love justice for other people. And as we do all of these things, judgment will not come upon us, but the blessing of the Lord. Israel was under the judgment of God, but we as the people of God, as we follow him, we have the blessing of the Lord. Let's pray, family. Father, we thank you for your grace, and we thank you for this word today to us. And Lord, we pr pray that you would challenge us, Lord, as a people. Lord, that you are our source, that you are our life, that you are our future and our hope. And Lord, we pray that you would empower us to be a people of faith and love and hope. And Lord, that you would fill us with the Holy Spirit and empower us to bring people to Jesus and Jesus to people. Lord, will you bless this day 
and will use us mightily, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like more information about Ignite Global Ministries, please go to our website, igniteglobalministries.org. While there, check out our Immersion Discipleship School and the books Pastor Ben has written.